0: Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi
1: everyone, this is Dev Raga. And what we're gonna do over the next couple of weeks is do some reruns of the top episodes of 2023. And the top episodes of 2023 are basically when I did a series called Money in Your Twenties, Money in Your Thirties, Money in Your Forties, and Beyond. And those episodes really resonated. With listeners. So, we're going to replay those over the next few weeks for you to have a listen to. If you haven't listened to them, I think it's a great chance for you to listen to it, particularly coming up to the end of the year and also in 2024. Now, just the other thing I wanted to let you know is in 2024, we're going to be rebranding this channel. We're going to go back to Devraga Personal Finance, the original name of the podcast. For those of you that have been following me since 2018 when I started, that was the original name. And then we rebranded to My Millennial Money Medical, and of course, we've now also rebranded since then to My Millennial Money Professional, because the money concepts are exactly the same. No matter what profession you are, no matter what your income levels are, the concepts and the principles remain the same. And I'm a great advocate of talking about those concepts and principles. And as I've always said, that you can come back and listen to these episodes 50 years from now, and the concepts and principles are going to be the same, even though I may or may not exist. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy the next few weeks of the reruns of money in your 20s, 30s, and 40s. And of course, as always, please stay safe. Hi, everyone, and welcome to My Millennial Money Medical. My name is Raga, and I'm your host. And in this episode, we will continue on our life series and discuss some of the core things you may wish to do in your 40s and 50s. Now just a reminder, this is not a hard truths episode, it's more of a guide. You may wish to do things differently and that's completely fine because life happens and not everyone can do everything as per these episodes. And also note, these episodes build on each other. So I assume you know all the principles I've discussed in the previous two episodes as part of this live series. Let's get started. If you want me to discuss a specific topic or if you have a specific question, don't hesitate to contact me via Twitter or via Facebook. And for those of you that are new to the channel, remember the three main aims, education, empowerment and entertainment. So what are some of the things that you may want to focus on in your 40s and 50s? And I know that there's quite a sizable number of people that are in their 40s and 50s listening to this episode right now and probably wondering what they can do to maximize their finances in that age bracket. So I've sort of come up with about six different things that you can possibly master. The first thing is managing debt. Now, I get nervous when people have huge amounts of debt in their 40s and 50s, 50s especially. I feel as if, you know, you get to your mid to late 40s, you really should be personal debt free. Managing debt is really important in these two decades. Now here are debts you need to ensure you have either fully paid off or have a plan to fully pay off. Number one, personal debt. Any consumer debt is a big no-no and I hope you don't have any at any time in your life. But if you do have any personal debt in your 40s and in your 50s, you need to get rid of it, and that's consumer debt. Of course, no buy now, pay later schemes, and I really hope that none of the listeners have any of those schemes attached to their name. Number three is home loans. Try and reduce this as much as possible. Now, part of this is also negotiating your home loan terms and conditions, asking your mortgage broker or bank, can they review the interest rates As rates go up for variables, some banks offer lower fixed rates. It seems a bit bizarre, but I'll take it if it works out better for me. Now, recently, due to the interest rate rises, I've contacted my bank manager a couple of times, and he's come back to me with a lower interest rate. So essentially negating any of the rate rises that I've had over the last couple of months. Now, of course, overall, my interest rates have gone up, which, you know, is a bit of a bummer but I have been able to shave off some of those rises with discounts just by asking my bank manager. Now, it's completely okay to be debt-free or mortgage-free in your 40s and 50s. Don't get sucked into this whole leverage thing. I'm not against leverage, but I would hate to think people borrow money just to try and amplify their gains and or losses without knowing the true costs and true risks of doing so. Now, managing debt, does that mean that it takes precedence over pay-yourself money? Does it mean that pay-yourself money is compromised? And the answer is absolutely not. Pay-yourself money should never be compromised. And investing for your future and retirement also should never be compromised. Now, does this also mean that managing debt means emergency funds are compromised? And the answer is no. Emergency funds are for emergencies. Paying off your mortgage in your 40s or 50s is not an emergency. Now, what a smart thing a lot of people do is offset your emergency funds, 12 months worth, for example, for expenses or income, against your principal price of residence to save on interest costs on that mortgage. What about investment loans? What about margin loans? What about property loans? Generally speaking, if you can reduce them as well, that's great. But don't reduce deductible loans at the expense of non-deductible loans. The aim of the game, remember, is to maximise your deductible loans and minimise your non-deductible loans. And by deductible loans, I'm talking about a tax deduction. Let's use an example to highlight these principles. Amy is a consultant neurologist and has just turned 40. She's married. Her partner is a stay-at-home parent. She has two children aged 6 and 10. Her debts are PPR of 1.25 million, investment property 1, 750,000, investment property 2, $800,000. Now, luckily, she has no consumer debt and she owns her own car outright. She has personal insurance, including life of 1.5 million, income protection, which is indemnity, trauma and critical illness insurance of $400,000. She has no TPD. She has a fully funded emergency fund for about six months of expenses. Her income is $400,000 per year, gross, and her assets outside of those property is super $300,000 index fund portfolio of $250,000. Currently, her children go to public school with a view to migrating to a private school for high school, which is grade seven and onwards. So what are some of the options for Amy? Amy. Amy's super is a bit less than where it probably should be at the age of 40. Now, this is likely due to the time taken off due to having kids. She may wish to pump up that super as much as possible. Amy is also very property heavy and debt heavy. Total debts are $2.8 million. That makes me feel slightly uncomfortable. Her income is only $400,000. Now, don't get me wrong, $400,000 is a pretty good income. But essentially, she's got a almost a $3 million debt portfolio. Now, Amy might wish to consult her financial advisor about this and talk about some of the risks associated with being so debt heavy. Now, the hierarchy of debt for Amy may be paying off her principal place of residence while keeping her investment property negatively geared. Given she's on the highest tax bracket, it would make sense to live off the government's tax benefits, so to speak. Remember, maximise your deductible debt, and minimise your non-deductible debt. Because the principal place of residence costs are not tax deductible, whereas investment property costs are tax deductible. So Amy chooses to max out her super, try and invest heavily into the index fund portfolio, and redirect any leftover money towards paying off a principal place of residence. Trying for retirement planning or planning for retirement in your 50s with debt overhanging you is very difficult. So, number one, managing your debt. Number two, reviewing your net worth and ensuring you are on track. In your 40s and 50s, life happens and it may mainly be around your children if you choose to have children. But it may also be around extended family members like older siblings, older parents who need more help. These competing interests may mean your personal financial and wealth takes a backstage. This is why setting up systems in place early on means it keeps happening in the background irrespective of whether life happens or not. Time is literally money. So it's really important in your 40s and 50s that you keep an eye on your net worth. So what is net worth? Put simply, it's what you own minus what you owe. Hopefully this figure keeps rising in your life. That's the aim. The net worth should be a positive number but sometimes it may be a negative number in your 40s and 50s as you may have debt which is still unpaid. Knowing your net worth is a nice barometer to let you know in which direction your financial life is generally headed. Some of the things included in your net worth statements are assets, cash or cash equivalents such as life insurance policy for example, investments, property, stocks, bonds, superannuation, cars and motor vehicles like Boats, etc. Let's use an example to calculate someone's net worth. Amy is a nurse and her assets are $100,000 cash in the bank account, $200,000 in a super account, home worth around $800,000, and car worth around $30,000. Her liabilities are $300,000 on a mortgage, $10,000 on car loans, $5,000 on credit card debt. Her net worth is all the things she owns which is $1.12 million minus all the things she owes, which is around $315,000. So her net worth is around $815,000. It's as simple as that. You may wish to do a net worth statement once a year. Now, what you may notice is your net worth may grow a lot in your 30s and 40s, but in your 50s, it may actually go sideways due to competing interests such as children or family and other life expenses. Of course, this depends on when and if you choose to have children. In our life, we chose to have children early to ensure we're relatively child expense-free in our 50s. There will always be some expenses, but at least the sixty dollars to $70,000 private school fees will have vanished, I hope. More money to invest then during the 50s, for sure. Now, other things you may wish to consider during the process of creating a net worth statement is... Annual tax planning meeting with your accountant, annual financial planning meeting with your advisor, and if you have a mortgage broker, catching up with them to ensure you're on a product appropriate for your needs. Asset allocation and rebalancing. It's a massive episode that I did on this in episode 80, if you're interested. Relooking at your insurances, will and estate planning to ensure it is still appropriate. Personally, we tend to do our will and estate planning and review it every five years where possible. So... The second thing that you may wish to do in addition to managing debt is reviewing your net worth and ensuring that you are on track. The third thing that you must do in your 40s and 50s or try and do as much as possible is you've got to preserve your wealth as an important aspect as building your wealth. I tend to think about your 40s and 50s as do not do things which are stupid decades. The last thing you want to do is get too greedy and lose what you've already built up. Nowadays, I'm much more preserving my wealth, rather than trying to rapidly grow it. I've done enough in the last 12 years to ensure the money invested keeps growing, so I don't need to take unnecessary risks. Guarding your wealth becomes the next frontier in your 40s and 50s. So, why do you need to guard your wealth? Number one, divorce. Unfortunately, 40s and 50s is where a lot of divorces happen. Kids are grown up, family conflict may arise, and couples just get more and more separated as they age. Number two is debt. If you have debt, then creditors may want the money back. If the debt is secured against an asset, they have every right to go after those assets to recoup those losses. Number three, car accidents. Surprisingly, New South Wales has one of the highest litigation rates for car accidents in the country. Most listeners here have a car and may drive it, so getting into an accident can end up being a big liability, even if you have insurance. Number four is property injuries. Even if you have property insurance, public liability insurance, it doesn't stop people getting hurt on your property, then suing you for living in unsafe premises you know that garden hose, which you know is always on your lawn and you jump over it because you know it's there? Well, the tradesperson attending your home to fix your plumbing doesn't know that. So clear that stuff up. Why take the risk? Number five is estate challenges. When you die, and especially if you don't have a legally valid will, then estate challenges are not uncommon. I've seen this while doing GP geriatrics. Unfortunately, although most family members are fine and are actually quite gracious, some of them can be real a-holes. Number six is technically you should be thinking about asset protection early in your life. So maybe in your 20s or 30s even, depending on your profession. Now, healthcare workers are considered high-risk professions. I didn't include asset protection as one of the things to be thought about in the episodes in your 20s and 30s that I just did in the life series, because I just couldn't fit everything in. But it's something that you must think about. I just went for the more major things which you may wish to focus on in your 20s and 30s. So what are some of the ways that you can protect your assets? There are four main ways of protecting your assets and wealth for individuals, not for businesses. Number one is family trusts. Number two is buying assets under a lower risk spouse. Number three is having a company structure. And number four is just getting damn good insurances. So let's go through each one of these. And I've discussed about asset protection as an in-depth episode and concept in episode 130, if you're interested. But in this episode, we're going to go through each of these on an overview pattern. So the first one, family trust, this gets lugged around and thrown around on Facebook forums all the time. Now, the way this works is when you buy things under a trust, it's not owned by any of the beneficiaries. This means any liabilities owned by the beneficiaries cannot be paid off using the assets owned by the trust. It's actually owned and operated by the trustee. So this creates a one step away when it comes to assets. Note also, there may be some tax advantages when using trust structures. That's only sometimes. Now, the best way to explain this is having an example. So let's use an example to highlight how trusts can be used to protect your wealth. And I've used these examples before in other episodes. Amy is 55 years old, does not do paid work, and personal assets are worth around $10,000. She also is included in a family trust structure as one of her beneficiaries. The family trust owns assets worth $5 million, which includes ETF portfolios. And these ETFs are actually not owned by Amy, but they're owned by the trust. Amy's brother, Bob, and sister, Lisa, are also beneficiaries in that trust. The $5 million portfolio produces an income of around $200,000 per annum, which is split between the three of them the advantage here is that each of them get $66,000 of income per year from the trust. So they need to pay tax on that $66,000 based on the marginal tax rate. Now, remember, Amy doesn't work. So her marginal tax rate is going to be low. So this way, there are some tax savings due to the trust structure if their marginal tax rates are low. So In other words, if one of the childs got the whole lot of $200,000, then they're going to be taxed at a higher marginal rate. Now, unfortunately for Amy, she has a debt problem. She has unsecured loans totaling $100,000. Suppose Amy is not able to pay down that debt. She's then forced to file for bankruptcy. Her creditors can then come after her personal assets, what she owns, The advantage for Amy now is it's going to be a lot more difficult for their creditors to come after the share of $5 million portfolio in the trust. Because remember, she doesn't own that. The trust owns it. She just gets an income from it. She just gets distributions from that family trust. Between the bankruptcy process, the trustee for the bankruptcy may say, well, you're getting $66,000 income per year, So, you know, we may need to work out some payments towards your unsecured debt because you don't own anything that we can't really sell anything to pay back the $100,000 of unsecured debt you may owe. Now, technically, I've looked into this. Even a bankruptcy may not fully protect Amy's assets, but you get the idea here is that's going to be a little bit more difficult for the creditors to come after the assets per se, but they can certainly come after Amy's income. Let's take another couple of examples. Let's change the scenarios. Now, supposing there are no brothers or sisters for Amy, supposing the entire $5 million portfolio is owned by the trust and the sole beneficiary is Amy. Suppose Amy meets someone and gets married and suppose she's been married for 10 years, let's say, then unfortunately due to a relationship breakdown, her new partner files a claim for her assets. Then there's some protection for Amy as the assets are held under the family trust and not by her personally. Again, nuances of this is that it adds a layer of protection, but it's never 100%. And lastly, another example, suppose Amy has two children who happens to be part of the beneficiary list of a family trust. Again, there's no brothers or sisters for Amy, it's just herself. And let's say she's married to a new partner, then she dies. What happens to her estate? Well, due to the deceased estates, which don't normally cover family trusts, her children are relatively protected as still the beneficiaries. Remember, Amy doesn't own the $5 million ETF portfolio, the trust does. So that's some of the examples that may be beneficial in people wanting to set up trust as an asset protection tool. So even if it doesn't reduce your taxes it may still be beneficial for you to have a trust structure for your investments or for your medical practice, et cetera, et cetera. The second way to reduce your risk is called a low-risk spouse option. Now, this is useful for those professionals who are deemed to work in high-risk environments. Healthcare workers are included in this example. I've not known a case where a doctor or a nurse or allied health worker is sued for negligence for their personal assets, but I suspect it's a theoretical risk and we wanna minimize our personal assets from being taken away from us due to a negligence claim, however frivolous or serious of a claim it is. The only problem with this strategy is, you need to be able to trust your partner. But in the event of relationship breakdown, it can get really, really tricky. Although the divorce and separating proceedings and property settlement process is usually and should be relatively transparent. Now, I've done a recent episode on divorce, if you're interested, uh, where I talk about parenting arrangements and uh, property settlements, etc. So espousal risk in general is just unavoidable. So who you marry or partner with is a big deal when it comes to finances, can make or break you financially. Let's use an example to highlight this principle. Amy is a surgeon and her partner Richard works at a bank. They both have equal share in the family home. Amy has a partnership in a surgical practice with other surgeons. And over the years, Amy's surgical practice booms along with their business partnerships. This also brings more liabilities, which means more creditors potentially. Amy has to buy more practice space, more practice locations, and also wants to buy a state-of-the-art mole map machine, which costs a few million dollars, and this means more business assets. As Amy is a partner in the surgical practice, um, she'll be personally liable for any business debts. If she cannot service the business debt, the creditors can come after her personal assets. But in this case, Richard would be considered a low-risk spouse. So after analysing their risk situation, they decide to transfer 100% ownership of the family home to Richard, which is her partner. Now, if something were to happen to Amy's surgical practice, then creditors may not be able to seize the family home in pursuit of their debt money. Again, this is far more complex. I've just tried to simplify it, so please seek independent advice. I'm just providing a high-level overview of the situation. Now, the third way to perhaps reduce your risk is a company structure. Sole traders and business partners are at increased risk of having their personal assets tied up in business bankruptcy claims or within creditor's reach. A business creditor can come after your personal assets if you owe business debts. Setting up a company may provide some asset protection and adds an extra layer of protection. This may mean if your company is sued or creditors go after your business assets, and some healthcare workers are business owners, then they're unlikely to be easily going after your personal assets. As bad as it sounds, this is kind of what happened to the recent Kilmore International School collapse. They had financial troubles for the last three years due to the COVID shutdowns, but everything wasn't transparent, and the owner of the school quietly stepped away, and apparently is now living in a leafy Melbourne suburb. Now, I don't know the guy personally, and this is all according to media reports, and I know a few parents, unfortunately, have been personally affected by the closure of the school, which is an unmitigated disaster. You don't want your child's school ever to go bankrupt and closed during very important years of their schooling life. Now, the only problem here is having a company structure. Although it protects your personal assets if something happens to your business, it may in fact accidentally give access to your company if something comes after you personally. So it works both ways. So let's use an example to highlight this risk. Amy owns a allied health practice under a company structure. The business debts and assets are all under the company name. Amy also has personal assets, namely a personal resident property, investment property, ETF portfolios and super. And her business is actually going extremely well. Unfortunately, in her personal life, she has come into some debt troubles. Creditors are after her assets, and she's been seen behind in her mortgage payments. Amy is a shareholder in her company, so technically, if her creditors really want They can recruit their losses. They could potentially get access to a business assets through this way. So they will need to speak to an accountant to see how best you can protect your assets. So a lot of people create company structures and then say, well, if something happens to the company or my business, I don't want creditors to come after my personal assets. And that's completely fine. But by doing that inadvertently, if something happens in your personal life, and your personal assets are under trouble, it may provide an avenue for creditors to go through that avenue and then seek compensation through your business assets. So it is a backdoor approach and you need to speak to an accountant on how to structure this so that you may want to have extra protection for your assets. Now, the last way of protecting yourself is, of course, having insurance. Um, You know, the last thing you want to have to do is to sell assets if you run into financial trouble or a health crisis. Your body, your mind, and your health is a personal asset and also needs protection. Remembering, protecting your wealth is far more important in your 40s and 50s than actually growing your wealth. Hopefully, you've done enough in your previous decades to set up systems in place to grow your wealth, and therefore, your 40s and 50s is about protecting your wealth And at the same time, because of all the foundations that you've laid in the previous decades, your wealth also seems to grow. Having insurance just means having good personal insurance, likely life insurance, income protection, TPD, critical illness or trauma insurance, as well as insuring your possessions like building, home and contents, car insurance or even loan protection insurance. I've discussed insurances ad nauseum littered throughout my episodes, so I won't go into it again and bore you again in this episode. Now, before we take a break, here are some common myths when it comes to asset protection. Number one, it's only for the rich people. It's not. It's far more important for people who are not ridiculously wealthy. Why? The ridiculously wealthy people can just pay off people in case of litigation. They can settle with sums of money. Middle-class families can't do that, so it's probably far more important for the average person as it is for the wealthy person. Number two, asset protection is focused for business owners. Now, assets are assets. Business owners and non-business owners, it doesn't matter. All of them need asset protection. At least be well-insured. Number three is professional indemnity insurance is more than enough. This indemnity cover only covers against medical legal claims for healthcare workers, or if you're in any other profession. It's only for professional medical or professional indemnity insurance. So it's associated with professional claims. It doesn't protect you against claims in a public liability incident or car accident etc cetera, etc. Cetera. If I get sued or creditors are after my assets, I can just transfer the assets to lower risk spouse, then couldn't I That's a common myth that we come across. And the answer is no. You can only do this if you don't have an active claim against your assets. Once the claim starts, you can't hide your assets. It's too late by then. Company structures are the best form of asset protection. Isn't that the truth? That's actually far from the truth. It is just one way to protect assets and may not suit everyone. And lastly, asset protection is illegal. This is a common rubbish myth that's floating out there if you own an asset, you're entitled to protect it. Asset protection is not illegal, and it's not the same as hiding assets or committing asset fraud. Now, let's take a quick break, and when I come back, we'll talk about three other things that you could do in your 40s and 50s when it comes to your money. Be right back. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast.
2: If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click Get Help, and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers, and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click Get Help.
0: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care.
1: Welcome back. Let's uh, push on and talk about some of the other things that you can do with your money in your 40s and 50s. Now, the fourth thing that you want to consider is pumping that super. Time and time again, I talk to healthcare workers in their 40s and 50s who just don't have adequate super. I've done a super series, uh, part one to three recently, uh, systematically explaining the powerful nature of super. Let's discuss some of the core things you should be considering when it comes to your superannuation. Number one, check your super fees. Investment returns compound and so does fees. Ensure you keep fees as low as possible for the type of investment you have within super. Know that super is just a structure that provides tax effective mechanisms to save For your retirement. So ignore super at your own peril. Generally speaking, I like to keep super fees of less than 0.5%. Number two is do you maximize your concessional contributions? Concessional contributions are only taxed no matter your tax rate at a flat rate of 15%. This means if you're on a higher tax rate than 15% and don't maximize your concessional contributions, you are giving away free money to the government. So ensuring you try and maximize your concessional contributions is really important. Acknowledge also any money that goes into super needs to stay there for the long term. And every year, you can contribute up to $27,500 concessionally. That is, get a tax concession on those contributions. And the other thing is, if you haven't used it up recently, listen up interns, residents and registrars, because I'm sure you wouldn't have, there are mechanisms which you can contribute more than this called carry forward contributions. And this also applies to anyone in a profession where they're training and they just don't have that enough income to be able to maximize their concessional contributions. And as they reach more seniority, their income rises, then you can bring or carry forward, beg your pardon, all of the concessional contributions and use it all up. And I think it rotates every five years. Number three, do you maximize your non-concessional contributions? Now remember, you're allowed to contribute up to $110,000 per year of non-concessional contributions. Non-concessional contributions just means after-tax contributions into super why would someone do that? We know investments within super are tax advantaged accounts. So if you didn't want access to the investments until you reach preservation age and want the best tax environment for your money, you may wish to consider non-concessional super contributions. In fact, if you're low on passive investments and don't own anything outside of super, this might be the single best investment you could do. Of course, you need to discuss it with your financial advisor to run some numbers. If you haven't maxed out your non-concessional contributions, then you may be able to bring forward future contributions, but there are rules that apply. Number four, why is super important? Now, super is super important because it was first designed to ensure Australians have a mechanism to save for their retirement. It provided tax advantages and also meant there are restrictions on when you can access your money. Superannuation is your money. That's very clear. On the back end of super, that is when you're ready to retire, accessing super can be done completely tax free. And that's why it's so attractive and shouldn't be ignored in your career, especially at the age of 40s and 50s. It's really vital. Now, the fifth thing that you wanna consider in your 40s and 50s is you have gotta determine how much money you need to retire on. This is really vital to know. If you don't know how much is enough, then there's no hard target. Without some sort of target, it's hard to plan out your retirement life. In the finance and investment world, there was a famous study published by three authors unofficially called the Trinity Study. It came out of Trinity University in San Antonio, Texas. It's based on the US data, and it's not based on Australian data. But I suspect there are some similarities between our markets and American markets. And the basic conclusions of the study are if you have a portfolio with a mix of stocks and bonds and withdraw around four percent annually then you're likely not going to run out of money over a 30-year period this is despite whatever the market does they based this on studying the markets from 1925 to 1995 and back tested the numbers for those markets the study is not without its criticism Number one, it doesn't take into account huge emergencies. Number two, it doesn't take into account emergencies every year. Number three, it doesn't take into spending, which can change based on market conditions. It assumes a steady state of spending of 4% of your portfolio. And number four is, more recently, updates done by Pi published in 2010 indicate accounting for all of the things we've just talked about, a 3% withdrawal rate might be more accurate. Now, I've discussed the 4% withdrawal rate in episode 32 during my past life as Dev Personal Finance, if you're interested. There's also another rule associated with this called the Rule of 25, which stems from the 4% withdrawal rate. This rule states you need to have investments which are about 25 times your annual expenses. So, if your annual expenses is $100,000, then you'll need $2.5 million in productive assets. So a basic formula as a rule of thumb, which I like, is your asset portfolio you need equals annual income divided by 0.04. Notice it's annual income and not annual expenses. Therefore, if you needed an annual income of $50,000, then you'll need $50,000 divided by 0.04, which is around $1.25 million in productive assets in retirement. Now, if you use the 3% rule, then it would simply be 50,000 divided by 0.03, which is $1.66 million in productive assets in retirement. So the pro tip here is when you start investment, think about how much you need in retirement or during your withdrawal phase. It's a question I ask almost everyone I talk to, and almost no one has thought about it in detail. And lastly, the sixth thing is work choices and children's education, high school and tertiary. This is where during your 40s and 50s, you probably will need to spend some money on your children's education and lifestyle expenses. Of course, this depends on whether you have children or not. This is when often you may find your net worth when you do have kids doesn't actually increase very much due to these expenses, which is why in your 40s and 50s, you're probably going sideways in your net worth rather than rapidly going up. Now, I've discussed the average cost of children in one of my recent episodes, I Forget which one it was, unfortunately, but the main points are kids are not cheap, no matter how you raise them. If you choose private school education, the cost add up. If you choose extracurricular activities, the cost add up. And the more kids you have, the more impaired your wealth building process can be, hands down. But not all of it is bad. Kids are a joy to adults, I think. They're unique. They're part of you. They'll always be part of you. And your child is the best for you. This is where I get more philosophical. If it cost me $10 million in retirement funds as opportunity cost due to the cost of my children raising them, then so be it. Because for me, no amount of money can replace the joy I get from spending time with my children. Now, let's talk a little bit about tertiary education. This is an interesting situation. In Australia, we are lucky to have what's called the HELP system, which is Higher Education Loan Program, I think it's called. used to be called HECS system, which is Higher Education Contribution Scheme. Basically, it's assistant tuition fees for those that access tertiary education on merit. But you can pay full fees for some courses if you wish, or if you miss out on Commonwealth funded PACES. If that happens, and if that's something you're considering, or even if it's an international education, the cost can add up significantly. If you choose diploma or TAFE education or trade school, it also can cost a significant amount of money. So something to think about and plan for, particularly for your children. Not everyone will choose tertiary education and that's completely fine, but whichever option you choose, having a financial road plan to achieve that is really important and perhaps something to think about in your 40s and 50s for your children. Having said this, I strongly believe children should not simply be given wealth or have their pathways carved out for them without their input. Having a discussion with your children early can help you in your financial goals as well. For example, if your child is not interested in tertiary education at all, then perhaps you may choose to relax on the work pedal a bit much earlier, as costs may not be that much for that child to achieve whatever they want to do in their life. Now, These are all very personal decisions and something only you can decide after family discussion. Of course, if you choose not to have children, that's fine too. You just catapulted your retirement significantly. However, you may wish to consider other people's children to help out. If you choose, that is the right thing to do. Now, that's about it for this episode about money in your 40s and 50s. In the next episode, we'll discuss some of the things to consider in your 60s and beyond. And I hope you're enjoying this lifestyle series. Remember to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast or whatever platform you may be using. I'll leave a five-star review on all of the platforms. That's even better. And please leave a positive review. The more ratings and reviews you leave, the more people get access to the podcast. So please keep them coming. On that note, here's a review I found from Ylyn93 on Apple Podcast, who writes, Amazing podcast. I've been listening to this for financial education over the last two years, and I've automated my process even to listen to the podcast one of the best podcasts I've listened to. Thank you very much. Thank you for that wonderful feedback. And I really like it that you've taken automation to the next level in listening to my podcast episodes. Now, for those of you that have realized a pattern here, Wednesday mornings is when I release every single week. So uh, if you want to automate Wednesday morning, put it in your diary. Uh, when you get in your car, chuck on My Millennial Money Medical and listen to DevRaga. So thank you very much, while in 93 on Apple Podcasts, for that wonderful feedback. My name's Dev Raga, and this is My Millenium Money Medical, and until next time, please make sure you stay safe.
2: We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast.